Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. More about them later. Today's guest, you know what? We talk about social media, don't we? We try and get our heads around it and wonder what's going on, but there's a lot of people out there, influencers and kind of fake gurus telling you how social media works, how you can get the most out of it, etc. Um, this person isn't. My next guest is someone you should really listen to. Have you ever spoken about something to a friend only hours later to see an ad on your phone pop up for the exact same thing? Well, my guest today is an associate professor in the information science department at the University of Maryland. She's a computer scientist and a social media expert. She's a specialist in media surveillance, information security, and how AI is used, making her the perfect person to explain to us why this scary stuff happens. She made it her mission to educate and inform everyday people about the implications of how we share information online. Through her famous TED Talks and her informative TikTok channel, she's educating people about the dangers of how they interact with technology, social media, and personal information in the digital world. I've been a big fan of her TikTok content for a while now. She shares useful and informative content that touches on everything from how our phones spy on us to data collection and storage. I'm so excited to have her today to tell us about the ways we can protect ourselves a little bit more online and what can happen if we don't. Please welcome Dr. Jen Goldbeck. Okay, so Jen, thank you so much for coming to join us on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time. You, you're, you're an expert in, in areas that I think that there's a lot of people that have kind of opinions or, you know, pick up information thinking that they're, they're, they, they know, they know the answers to stuff and what is right and what isn't right. So I, 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 in the introduction today to the show, I wanted to explain a bit more about your background. And so I've gone through kind of like your qualifications, the fact that you're a PhD and you really are, you know, probably the world's leading authority, if not the world's leading, one of the world's leading authorities on these issues as a computer scientist. But let's first of all talk about social media. Let's talk about it, the positives of it. And then let's talk about some of the risks that are attached with it as well. So a lot of us go into it naively. We start using it. We start creating content. And um, whether we're a teenager, whether we're an adult, we think that we can we can reach the whole world. You know, our, our information, our content, our knowledge, our experience, our, you know, it can get out there to a much bigger audience and it can benefit so many people. But that doesn't seem to be the way it happens for most people. For most people, it seems to be a real slog between producing content and then finding a way of other people being able to see that content who might fit into the right demographic, the right psychographic. And, and it, a lot of people then become a little bit disillusioned by it and, and frustrated that it doesn't do what it's supposed to do or what everybody uh, or these influence seem to allow us to think that it should do. Uh, and then, you know, the guys will say, well, I don't look good in a bikini, so it's not going to work for me and uh, and that kind of stuff. So what are your thoughts on, on, on how it's evolved and, and how people have used it and the kind of mistakes people make? Yeah, it's one of those things where I was a PhD student kind of as social media was coming into the world. So I, I kind of came along with it. And, you know, at the time, if you think back to like the very early 2000s, which is when we started to see like Friendster and MySpace, the really early stuff and, you know, blogging was emerging then, that was the first time that people without a lot of technical skills could put stuff online. Before that, like if you wanted to put up a web page, you had to know HTML, you needed to have a server that you could put stuff on. It was really a very small number of people who could have an online presence. And so these social media sites were the first time that you could just put yourself on the Internet without having to learn a whole bunch of stuff. And that's really what it was kind of for the first almost 10 years, let's say. It was people putting up a profile picture, filling out some info, connecting with friends. Uh, we did eventually get status updates, but there wasn't even that for a while. So it was just a, kind of a place to have an online presence. And then as we saw like smartphones come out where people started being online a lot on their phones as opposed to on their computers and they had access to cameras, they could easily start sharing things online. Then we start getting more of what we see as social media today where people are sharing pictures and videos and, and little snippets of their lives. Now on one hand, 
Look, I'm on social media all over the place. Like, I love it. It has brought a lot of good to the universe. It connects people in in ways that were really hard. And I'm, we are going to talk, I'm sure, a lot about the dangerous and scary things that happen. There's a lot of bad stuff that happens with social media. At the same time, if you don't remember or weren't alive before you had social media, it's hard to think that like if you were growing up in a small town like I did, there's not a lot of people that you can connect with. And so if you are part of a marginalized group, whether that's say you're uh, have a rare disease or you're part of a demographically smaller group, if you're part of a group that's discriminated against and you're one of the only people in your town, there was nobody for you to talk to. There was nobody to get support from. And social media has made it so you can connect with those kinds of people. Uh, you can find people who have the same interests as you. So if you're really into like medieval sword work, you'll find those people where you wouldn't have before. So it's done amazing things for forming communities that we didn't have before. Uh, but what we also saw, like you said, people started to go viral. They started to get big followings. And some of those were young people. And that makes a lot of other people go, oh, well, this is like any 13 year old can do it. And that's not how it works. It's actually really hard to build a following. And, and so now I think that does disillusion a lot of people. They want to be famous. It's possible to do that. But they think it's just a thing that happens. And in fact, it's a job and it's a lot of work and it, it takes a lot of expertise, just like being good at anything. When you see people that have, that have made it big and let's stay with TikTok, Charlie D'Amelio is probably the most famous person out there from that perspective. Was, was that an element of luck for her or do you think that was sheer determination and hard work from her and also her sister? So, you know, it's a little bit of both for sure. Like to, there are good content producers who aren't super popular. Like that's definitely a thing that happens. Um, so you do have to have some luck to get yourself seen and get picked up, whether it's by the algorithm, especially on TikTok, like that's so algorithmically driven or by other popular people who are then going to spread you out. So you have to get caught that way. And there's some strategy to that. I teach that in my classes. Um, but yeah, there's luck there. At the same time, there's a pretty solid formula for getting stuff seen. One is that you have to make really good content. And that is a hard thing to do, but you have to make stuff that is well produced, you know, it has good lighting, it has good sound, but that's surprising or engaging that makes other people want to share it, that makes them want to engage. And that's just like creating media on any platform. If you make a boring TV show, nobody's going to watch it. If you make a dumb movie, nobody's going to watch it. And if you make boring TikTok content, nobody's going to watch that either. If you're making really good stuff, people will want to interact with it and the algorithm is going to want to push that out. And so I think it's majority skill, but there definitely is some luck that comes behind sustained popular presence on any platform. Yeah. And it's not just genre specific. You know, we talk about Charlie, but there's a, there's a great TikToker called Dr. Julie Smith, who's a psychologist and she's got a good few million followers and she just does really lovely, engaging, thought provoking content around what you need to think about challenges with, you know, depression and relationships and work and that kind of stuff. Uh, and she captures people that, 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 and gets them to feel, doesn't she, at the end of the day? Because I think that that is that I feel something from the content that she's making. There's another guy, uh, Matthias, I forget his surname. He's an American guide, the psychologist again, and he picks up a big audience because he's just talking to people in a way that he's it, 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 thinking about their emotions and helping them handle their emotions. And and then there's Dr. Cody, who's the, who's the chiropractor, and he's got millions as well. And all he does is he keeps laughing every time he cracks someone's back, which to me <laughs> is absolutely gold because it's almost like he's as shocked as we are when we hear the crack and so it isn't just you know as people would have said maybe a year maybe two years ago about the the, the teenagers dancing on tiktok that get the audience now when you when you look at these different uh content creators across all of the platforms there's essentially an audience for everyone isn't there so how do people find their audience yeah one thing that i think a lot of people miss and i i see this both as someone who's really present on all these platforms but also as a professor who teaches people how to become influencers i have a class on it uh is that they go okay i want to be famous and uh here's the thing that i'm interested in whether it's medieval sword work or especially if you pick something popular like golf Tons of people play golf. I want to be an influencer about golf. Oh, hold on. Before you go any further, where's this medieval sword work come from? <laughs> I, <know>. something... <laughs> I don't know anything about this. It seems like one of those random things that should be popular on the internet. Uh, now I'm going to get added by all the medieval sword people. Uh, <laughs> 
but you know, whatever you pick a topic about, you go, okay, I've got things to say about this. I'm going to go out and say those things. Um, people don't realize that a really important step is being engaged in that community already. So if you want to come in and and talk about golf on whatever platform it is, well, there's already people that are doing that. So what are you going to bring that's different? What do their audiences want? Like, what do people respond to? How are they going to figure out who you are? Because a really good way to get popular is to have other popular people say stuff about you and then bring you out to those audiences. So if you just show up and, and look, this is the same way it works offline too. If you just show up and you're like, I am now an important person who's going to say things to you, you're not going to do very well. But if you come in and you really learn about the community, what the language is, what the culture is around it on that platform, what people really want to see, then you have a much better chance of doing well. But a lot of people just jump in and you know don't connect like that. The other problem, and I think this is one of the biggest flaws that I see when people start trying to be content creators, is that they have things they want to say and they have things that they are interested in, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a thing that other people are interested in. You've got to think like whenever you're producing content in any way, your responsibility is to the audience. It's not to yourself. If you want to gain a following, you have to make things that the audience is going to be interested in. And that may mean it's a little bit different than what you originally pictured because what you pictured may have been boring <laughs> to everybody else. So really kind of figuring out what do people respond to and then, you know, making those decisions about, well, people might not like this as much, but I'm going to put it in there anyway, because it's important to me. That's okay. But not having that real attention to your audience, that's a real failing point for a lot of people where they just won't focus on what people want to see. And that makes it hard to grow. Talk, talk to me about fake gurus, because it seems to me that there's, there's a lot of people out there that either want to get rich quick, they want to lose 20 pounds in the next four weeks. Uh, get, get slim quick okay or they want to get a million followers and there seems to be a lot of people out there and i'll take the, the fake gurus from the, the financial services side because i probably know more about than others there's a lot of people out there teaching people how to trade stocks or cryptos or, 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 or forex for example and selling them people on the idea that they can they can make money fast and i know a lot of them are full of rubbish okay i know a lot of them are just making noise more than they are anything else but because of those three things that people want to get rich quick they want to get a million followers quick and they want to lose weight quick i find that people are kind of like sucked in and, and seduced by the people that talk about that kind of stuff that for me on social media is dangerous how do you see it yeah absolutely um expertise is one of those things that we have really seen a, a failure of and a highlighting of in the last year and a half, especially, right? Um, and, you know, certainly we can talk about it with like respect to COVID, with respect to politics, but as you say, any space, uh, you, you want to be able to vet the credentials of the people you're listening to. If you are hiring a financial advisor, you would hopefully do a lot of research on them to make sure you are hiring a good person. If you're gonna give your attention to someone online, a lot of people are just like, well, he told me the thing that I wanted to say. Maybe it's going to work. It looks okay here. I'm just going to listen to it and engage with it anyway. Um, and it can be really dangerous, especially when you're making decisions, whether they're financial decisions, healthcare decisions, political decisions, to just grab onto that shiny thing that sounds like what you want to hear. Um, I think this is part of what we see as a much bigger issue, if I kind of step back into my academic role, um, as information literacy when we looked at the internet kind of, or the web emerging in the 1990s, we're like, well, we've got to teach kids how to decide like what are reliable websites, what aren't reliable websites. And we still do that pretty well. But now that we've shifted into social media, everything kind of looks the same, right? I could come on, I don't know anything about finance. I could come in and make a very slick looking finance social media channel. And it's going to look just like yours. It's going to look just like someone who's spent an entire career doing that because it's put kind of in the frame of these platforms. And that strips away a lot of the clues that might otherwise let you know, I don't know what I'm talking about in that space. So it's a thing that we're still trying to figure out how to teach people to do well is really assess like, is this a person worth listening to? Or is this somebody who's just full of it and trying to get a bunch of attention and make their own money off of you? So yeah, it's absolutely a big problem. And it's a lot of work on the information consumer to assess who is it that they should be listening to. It's a really hard problem. Mm. And I think that I think that if you compare building a social media following to, to building a stock portfolio, there's 
I believe that there's more with the stock portfolio that people can research. I we have a stock market, for goodness sake. You know, we can do research on the companies, the actual figures of those companies. When it comes to people build, building an audience online, everyone's got an opinion. Everyone's, you know, everyone says, you should do this, you should do that, you should do this. And, and it pushes people in many different directions. You know, you should be on TikTok. No, you should be on LinkedIn. No, you should be on everything. You know, why are you not on Pinterest? You know, in fact, you know, you should make different content for each one of those. No, actually, what you should do to save time is make the same content, just slightly change it a little bit. And people are like, well, I just want a million followers. What have I got to do? <laughs> for sure. And, you know, part of the, the problem that goes along with that is that some people you know, they start doing it legitimately being like, I'm going to build this following, I'm going to share this thing. And then they hit that mark pretty early where like, oh, this is going to be a ton of work. I have to make so much content and I have to say so many smart things and I have to do it in this way. And then they'll just buy it instead. You can buy followers, you can buy comments, you can buy likes. And so one, that doesn't help you at all as a business. And we can talk about that if you want to. But two, what it does on the consumer side, if I'm looking to you for advice on a topic and I see you have a million followers and tons of likes, but actually they're just bots and you've bought them, that makes it even harder for me to assess, right? Because if you have all these likes and all these followers, that gives me a sign that maybe you're reliable, but a lot of that's fake. And this is a thing that I study in my research is these bots that follow people and, and like, and it's mostly businesses. We talk about it in terms of like politics where there's bots amplifying things, but it's mostly people with small businesses who are buying lots of likes and followers to make their business look more legit. And on one hand, I understand why they do that. On the other hand, it makes it a lot harder for us as people who are interacting them uh, with them to know what's legitimate. That's a really interesting point because if you think about it, there's so much pressure on small businesses to try and be significant and maybe not enough hours in the day to, to, to either run social media strategy and campaigns themselves or the know-how to do so, or, or the, the, the ability to finance an outside team yeah. to do that. You know, I've worked with a bunch of different social media agencies over the last few years, and for sure, we have an industry in the UK called double glazing. And that industry is where people go door-to-door -door knocking, selling double glazing to help people save on their heating costs or, or, or soundproofing and stuff like that. And it's a bit of a torrid industry, you know, it's a, it's, it's a bit grubby, you know, it's, you know, banging on people's doors, putting your foot in their door when they open the door and saying, can I come in and save you some money on your, you know, your heating bills? It's not much loved. It's ridiculed quite a lot. But when I look at the whole social media agency world, that to me is the modern day version of double glazing salespeople. There's an awful lot of these companies out there that have popped up and they can do all these wonderful things and they can solve all these problems. Just pay them five, ten thousand dollars a month and they'll manage it all for you. And and literally they haven't got a clue what they do themselves. And oh, you know, your industry is a bit more difficult, more challenging than we first thought. And it's like, yeah, but you said you worked with six other companies in my industry. Yeah, but they're not quite the same as yours. And so I find it, you know, even that 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 begs a problem, doesn't it? And even and even we've seen news online where those agencies have been actually doing the bot thing and the buying the likes and the followers for their clients without the clients even knowing. Yeah, I mean, it makes them look better if they do that. Uh, and and the worst part of that is that on a lot of platforms like Facebook, right, which on one hand isn't like the hot platform that everybody's using, on the other hand, everybody's on it. Um, if you buy followers on Facebook, you're actually damaging the ability of a brand to reach people because Facebook doesn't, if I follow your brand on Facebook, I don't necessarily see everything you post. Facebook decides, you know, a percentage of your followers see your content and they charge you to have more <clears> of your followers see your content. If you have a bunch of fake followers, that means your content is being seen by fake people and you actually have to spend money to get it seen by legitimate people more. So there's a lot of real damage that can be done when a consultant or a social media company, uh, you know, consultant comes in and says that they're going to do things for you and then tries to fake their way through it. Because on one hand, sure, it's pretty easy to develop a set of tips that are going to get an initial boost in response, but then to actually sustain that, to build something that's big, to know how to make good content, like that's a really hard job. And it's something that you know, you're exactly right. A lot of people coming in saying they can do it, they don't really know how to do it past that you know, first initial easy stage. If you go back in time, I mean, I'm 51, so I'm a bit older than you, but <clears throat> one thing that used to fascinate me is how companies would spend lots and lots of money on magazine advertising. 
And I remember years ago when I started to get involved in it and trying to find out how magazine advertising, industry-specific magazines and, you know, industry-specific newspapers, you know, they, they say, well, if you do a full-page ad, it's this. If you do a half-page ad, it's that and so on. And I'm like, okay, right, so that's $2,000 for the half-page ad. So what's the outcome I'm going to get? Well, you know, we have a readership, okay, of 70,000. Okay, and that means then that on top of that readership, there's going to get a coverage. There's other people that are going to pick that magazine up and read it. So maybe 140,000. So a percentage of that. Okay, so what percentage of that are going to buy from me? Well, you know, that's very difficult to say. And I used to sit there going, how, how do I spend this $2,000 and give it to you and you not be able to give me any form of ROI? But then when social media came along, there were analytics and analytics were giving me how many people it was reaching, how many people were clicking, you know, how many people were then responding and filling in the, the name, the number and the email address or whatever it is the ad would run. And so it felt like to me that it got a lot better. Uh, but then it seems to be now that it's now kind of a lot harder to get what you want to get out of it. And you end up still spending a lot of money and you still can't be sure of what the outcome's going to be. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. There's so many different ways that you can spend that money on social media. So you can hire influencers to post your content. You can do like straight up Google ads. You can do retargeting ads. That's where the product that you looked at follows you around onto all those different websites. There's lots of different modalities to do it. Um, you can get analytics on all of that, which is great. You certainly can see what your ROI is, but it's going to vary between things. Like there's so many factors at play, including a lot of the luck that you mentioned before in terms of who's going to see it, that it also is unpredictable just in a, a kind of new and interesting way. A digital unpredictability as yeah. opposed to an analog unpredictability. Okay, let's let's discuss uh, and understand better what the dangers are with these devices that we seem all to be glued to. And, you know, we have this deal at dinner with my kids. It's like it go, the, the phones go in the middle of the table. First one picks their phone up, is either doing the dishes or is paying for dinner. Depends on what's going on. And, you know, it's really, really hard. If somebody, my wife's phone, phone, her battery went flat the other day on her phone. And she's like, right, we need to find someone that's got an iPhone charger. We need to find someone. I'm like, hun, we're in Monaco on holiday. We're going for a walk. And she's like, yeah, no, no. If we stop, if we stop for lunch now, I'm like, it's 10.45, why would we stop for lunch now? And she's like, yeah, but someone might be able to charge the phone, maybe just a coffee. And that kind of desperation to have that device and, and, and feel that they can use it, regardless of what it's for, for me is fascinating. But what's more, more concerning is as a dad with two daughters that are both at university, it's who's looking back at them through the camera, who's listening to them uh, through the microphone, uh, what, what actually, what else is being done here to, to to watch or spy, let's say that, spy on what my daughters are up to? Uh, we need about five hours to cover all of it. Uh, I, it's, it's the kind of thing where, you know, on one hand, we all kind of have in our head, right? Okay, like we're being tracked, it is being collected on us all the time. We know that, we try to be smart about it. On the other hand, as a computer scientist who I build artificial intelligence, who uses all this data, I really get deep in there and I am terrified over and over about what's going on with all of this. So maybe I'll start off with a few little ones and then we can dive deeper because we certainly can't get to all of it. So some of it is just the actual data that's being harvested. So we're always told, like, be careful about what you put on your social media account. Don't put your address, your phone number, whatever. And of course, like, that's good advice. But the vast majority of the data that's collected is passively collected in the background in all kinds of ways that we don't know that's going on. So if you just look at the trackers that are on your phone that sends data off your phone, there are thousands of those while you sleep every night that send data off to all kinds of unknown places. Sometimes the people who make the apps, but much more often companies that do advertising. So they're collecting data from lots of different apps and it has all kinds of things. So, you know, depending on your settings and People shouldn't think that they're so clever that they can use settings to get around all of this. Um, they can get your contact list, when you sent text messages and to who, your call history, other apps that you have installed on your phone. They can very easily look at the text that you've copied. Like if you want to copy and paste text, lots of apps just pull whatever you have on the clipboard there and keep that in case. Key loggers, all sorts of stuff. Tons of data being collected that way. Um, the microphone is being turned on passively when you're not using the app. 
the camera is being turned on by some apps to do that. They listen in in the background. They look at your face and see how you react to things. Uh, your location be can be tracked even if you have location services turned off. And then once that data is collected and shared, there's all kinds of other stuff that we can do with it. So using the artificial intelligence that people like me build, I try to use it for non-creepy stuff, but it gets used for all kinds of creepy things. They can find out tons of information about you. So demographic stuff, behavioral things, what your reactions are to things, but also when you're around other people and people that you might know and the, the ways that they do that are astonishing. Uh, even to me, someone in the field, and, and certainly I've learned from my TikTok where I talk about this, astonishing to everybody else. Um, and it, it you know, kind of makes you feel powerless in the end because there's so much going on and we can't really control it if we use these devices. Well, what will happen, do you think? Will it go full circle eventually where people go, okay, this is, there's too much of this going on. I'm just not going to have a device like this near me or around me anymore. Or do you think... It, it's just you're part of a runway now that's just never going to end. It's never going to stop until it gets to the point where you can't work out. Well, you can't even work out today, but even more so, you can't work out from head to toe whether you're coming or going. Yeah, I I think we're we get too much value from these phones to to be like I'm just going to go back to a flip phone because very little of what we do with them at this point is actually making phone calls, right? I could do really well on my phone without being able to make phone calls. Um, I don't know that I could make my way through the world without the map on my phone. <laughs> That's the thing that got me to buy a smartphone back in 2007. And, uh, you know, I need that so much. And the, we've kind of built our lives around having connectivity all the time. You know, I was watching some movie a couple months ago and a guy was like, okay, so I'm, it's like in the 1950s, I'm going to leave the office and then from this time to this time, I'll be at this restaurant. Here's the phone number. I can be reached there. And then from this time to this time, I'll be at this other place, giving the phone number of all these places he would go. Um, you know, if we were to try to go back to that, it wouldn't just be sort of inconvenient, like that inability to get online and connect with people. It would really change the way that we've come to efficiently run our businesses and our lives at this point. So I don't think that's going to go away. At the same time, I do think people are very much getting to the point as they learn about what's going on to say, this is way past enough. Why, I, how are you even allowed to do this <laughs> to me? Uh, that, that's a comment that I get most often to the things that I explain that's going on is how is it legal for them to do it? And basically it's legal to do whatever they want as long as they cover it in the terms of service in, in a lot of places. So I think the path that we're on, it depends on if I'm having a good day or a bad day, it could go extremely dystopian and we're kind of there. Um, but I think where we're ultimately going to end up is which, with both much stricter regulation over this kind of thing, what data can be collected, um, default opt-out, some of the stuff that we see in Europe with GDPR, their privacy law, I think we're going to see a much stronger push towards better regulation there, um, but also some technical approaches. So uh, Apple has recently released a new version of their iOS for the iPhone that allows you to stop apps from recording your device's unique identifier. And that's one of the main ways that you were tracked on your phone. So they've made it so you can just do a setting and no app is allowed to track you. All the big social media apps are very angry about this. Uh, I think it's great. It's a technological solution to a problem that we haven't been able to regulate and the industry is certainly not choosing to regulate. So I think like we saw in the spam email wars in like the late 90s, early 2000s, where there'd be spam, there'd be new filters. And, and now we're in a place where we don't really deal with a lot of spam in our inboxes. I think we're going to have that kind of escalating technological privacy war to where we end up with pretty good technological protection. And then if we have some regulation to go along with that, I think we will end up in a better place. But I think it's a 10 or 15 year proposition before we get there. And a lot of bad things are going to happen in the meantime. It's a really good point. And also it doesn't serve, if that does change, it doesn't serve governments and police organisations that want to be able to gain uh, information on the bad guys, let's say, uh, or the rule breakers. But does that not make Apple almost become godlike when it comes to that? There, they, Are they taking that stance, you know, and, and let's sell more phones because if we do this, people will like us for it. I, I mean, I think Apple is making a, a wise strategic decision to use privacy as a selling point. Um, it's been a pretty consistent position for them. Not that they're perfect. I mean, no tech company is, but they they have really stood by 
allowing people to have their phone data encrypted, not putting in back doors, not putting in back doors to be able to access the phone. Now this step, um, they've come up against the FBI in a terrorism case here in the US, which I, I think made people see the complexities of the issue. You know, Apple didn't want to be supporting terrorists, but if you allow, say, the FBI to get around to the encryption on a phone to get to a terrorist, you may say, well, that case, we all can agree that's something that we want to be able to prevent. Um, who's going to stop them from doing it for like a street drug dealer, right? Some guy sold cocaine to one person on the street. Are we going to access his phone too? Who's going to stop Russia from doing it to access the devices of government uh people sort of who are against what's going on in the government. They might, plenty of regimes are going to do that. That certainly could happen here in the U.S. as well. Um, it could happen anywhere. And so if you do it for one thing, you kind of have to allow that it's going to go for everything else. And Apple has said, that's not what we want to do. So yeah, I mean, they're doing it to make more money, but I, I think it's a decision that's smart for them because people want it. Um, but yes, on the other hand, it does put things in the hand of a few tech companies that make these operating systems, you know, maybe we eventually see that with other apps that kind of sit in the middle. Um, but we're in the really early stages of finding those technological solutions. Mm. Okay, let's, let's go through some steps that people can can take because we'll go we'll, we'll go down a rabbit hole here of some stuff that I think yeah. you and I'd be fascinated about and I don't want to I don't want the audience to go hold on a minute I wanted to ask Jen this so let's let's talk about what, what should my daughters do let's take my daughters as your example okay so I've got 19 year old daughter at university she's studying social media and content creation at university okay and my other daughter is studying graphic design at University of Arts in London and they are 19 and 22 as I've said they both use Snapchat a lot, um, they use Instagram, they use TikTok, um, don't use Facebook because that's for old people. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, we've heard that one before. Um, use WhatsApp, but if I want to get hold of them quickly, Instagram Messenger on, for one of them is the one and and um, WhatsApp and, uh, and TikTok Messenger for the other one is the one. So. I, I want to be protective. I'm their dad. I care about them. I don't want them to get in any trouble and whatnot. What kind of tips should they should they listen to? What kind of steps should they take just to, to make sure that they're being cautious? So, so I think that there's kind of steps with the content that you're sharing, and then there's also steps with the device that you can take. So on the content side, one piece of advice I give a lot of people is to share things more ephemerally. Like your social media platform doesn't need to be a lifelong journey of everything you have ever done collected and held by one company. Um, so if they're using Snapchat, like that's great. Snapchat disappears <laughs> most of the time, right? Like the instant messages that you send to people, those snaps disappear. Now Snapchat keeps a copy, but it's not out there for lots of other people. Uh, Instagram has this feature, you know, for older people, which <laughs> they're absolutely right. It's mostly in older people on Facebook. Uh, Facebook has this feature with stories where this is content that disappears after 24 hours. Uh, so that's one thing to think about. Can you post something in one of those more ephemeral places where it's just going to go away? That's a good idea. Um, you can also think about platforms that are more direct. So um, Messenger now is owned by Facebook, so that has its own problems. But Messenger or even just like standard text messaging or iMessage, that's something that's one to one, right? It's, it's going between me and you. It's not something that's posted out there that a lot of other people can see. And depending on the platform, if we're texting each other, there's no third party that's going to intercept that. So looking for your messaging at something that's a little more secure, if you just have a small group of people, can you do it in a group text or in, in something that's not owned by a big tech company? That's pretty smart. Um, and then delete stuff after a while. So I have a ton of Twitter accounts. I'm really active on Twitter, but a lot of them I have delete after some of them two weeks, some of them one year. So I don't have this huge log. So not having as much information is a good idea. And if you do have a ton of stuff online, so people who've been on Facebook for a long time, for example, they're like, oh, I have all these pictures like from back in college. You can download on every platform your archive of everything you've ever done and it will have all of your photos and your posts and everything so you don't lose that. And then you can go <laughs> delete all of it. So that's kind of on the content side. Uh, on the device side, so I would say thing number one is to get some kind of do not tracking software. Um, I use an app called Disconnect by Privacy Pro. It's an iPhone app. Um, 
and it stops tons of trackers. It saves you data. It makes things go faster. It shows you a list of these thousands of trackers that it has blocked and you can configure it to allow them to go through. Um, so looking for apps like that that stop tracking on the phones, that's a great idea. Um, turning off access to, you know, get into those privacy settings and turn off every app's ability to do anything unless you really need it. So like I have location services basically turned on for my maps and find my iPhone and that's it. Now there's ways that people can get around this. Facebook certainly sneaks around this and we can talk about that if you want to, but it, it makes you more protected. Same thing for the microphone, same thing for the camera. Just because there are technological ways around those settings doesn't mean you don't get protection from that. Um, and then turning off data access is really an important way to stop this kind of tracking. So apps can use cellular data, but you can turn off their right to use cellular data. So basically they only can send data when you're on Wi-Fi. That stops a lot of tracking that you might run into. So those are some kind of technological solutions on your device that will definitely help. Okay, interesting. Good tips there. Tell me something. How did you get into this? Uh, I, uh, so I, I was an undergrad economics major and then kind of decided at the very end to do computer science. I, I've always been very into computers and just, you know, didn't think it was the right field for me until I kind of had that epiphany. Um, but was really interested in that interdisciplinary space. So as an undergrad, I went to the University of Chicago. That's where like the Freakonomics guys are that kind of look at, you know, how do we use economic principles to just study behavior? That was always the really interesting thing for me. And so when I got into graduate school, I was like, okay, so like, how do we look at things like social networks, which sociologists studied at that time? Could we put those on the web? And my advisor was like, yeah, maybe you could put a social network on the web, like see how that works out for you. Uh, and so I, I was building social networks. You know, I, I had built one for my research before Facebook existed. Um, it, I had no interest in making it a big thing. Thank God. I think that would be a difficult life. Uh, but you know, it was really connected into the rise up of social networking in the early 2000s. Uh, and it became a place where like, I was really fascinated in like, what's all the stuff we can figure out from this new huge amount of data that's suddenly accessible online. When sociologists studied social networks before the web, if they had like 50 people, that was like huge. That was a massive data set. And all of a sudden we have 50 million people that we can study. Um, and so my research into like, what is artificial intelligence look like when you apply it to this data and what insights can we get um, coincided with a real privacy concern. I am a very private person. I want to control access to all my data. And I see firsthand all of the ways that we can just go around that and figure out whatever we want. So I've kind of ended up in this place now where I'm like, part computer scientist building AI and part privacy evangelist trying to break everything that I build and make it not work because there's no data and that would be great. Did you use when you, how long have you been on TikTok now? Um, so I, well, so I've had my own account producing content just since February. Okay. So you've been on TikTok since February. I remember your, your first videos coming out. I remember latching onto you at the beginning. You've got some 200,000 followers, something like yeah. that since february yeah yeah i hit about a hundred thousand i think in three weeks <laughs> that's right yeah that's right because it went high right at the beginning so uh what what did did you use years of experience or did you do just produce good honest high quality content in your mind what 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 what, what was going on there for that to grow as quickly as it did uh totally both uh so <laughs> <laughs> love it. Um, so I have, we were talking before we started recording, I have five golden retrievers. Uh, we yeah. rescue goldens. Um, they're super popular online. We have about 400,000 followers on Snapchat, uh, 130, 140 on Twitter, hundred thousand on Instagram. I've had their account. Uh, this is like a place to play around for like five years at this point. And you know, I've, I always have little accounts I'm experimenting with, but when I decided like, okay, I'm going to start making stuff for TikTok, I had a lot of experience in terms of like video editing, like how do you make stuff really snappy? How do you hit in a short form? Um, so I feel like I do produce good content. Like it's well lit. The sound is really good. It's well composed in the background. It's interesting to look at. Uh, but also I a hundred percent used everything I know about how these algorithms work. So, you know, on TikTok, for example, you can put music in the background. That's kind of how TikTok started. 
Um, if you're just talking about the stuff we're talking about, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to a soundtrack. But on TikTok, if you use trending music, the algorithm shows you to more people. So you can just put that music and turn the volume down in the background. So it's there, but nobody can hear it. But the algorithm doesn't care. It shows you to more people that way. Uh, if you caption your, te your text, right? So as I'm speaking, you can see the words at the bottom. One, that engages more people because plenty of people use TikTok with the sound off. Uh, but TikTok also uses that to figure out what your video is about. So you don't just have that little description of your video. You now have every word that you've said that gets captioned and put in there. Um, and so there's all these little things that I understand about how the algorithm works that makes it much easier for me to end up on somebody's For You page kind of featured by the TikTok algorithm to new people because I'm hitting every single thing that's going to make it more visible that way. So it's, you know, it's a combination. If I've occasionally made videos that I'm like, I know this one isn't going to do well because it's like, I want to make it, but it's kind of boring and it's not that engaging and they don't do very well. Like you have to make good content. Uh, but if you do make good content, you have to also do things to get it seen and knowing how the algorithms work helps a lot with that. Tell me about your course and, and how many people have been through it, how long it runs. Give me some more details around it. Yeah, so I teach a course, uh, it's called How to Become an Influencer, and it is a really hands-on class on doing a lot of the stuff that we've talked about. So um, it's undergrads and graduate students, and we kind of start off like, how do you make good content? And we talk about things like lighting, and I teach them how to edit in Lightroom and how to compose things together. So just how do you make something that people will want to look at? Um, you know, as a dog influencer is an example, right? There's a ton of people who have... Instagram and Twitter accounts for their dogs. Um, and most of them are boring. Like you don't want to look at them. And if you think, if you study the ones that do well, it's like they're down at the eye level with the dog, as opposed to standing above your dog and photographing down, it's photographed in natural light. You know, if my husband, sometimes he'll try to take pictures of the dogs and he'll take them like in the kitchen with the light on. I was like, I can't use this picture. Like the lighting's terrible. The composition is bad. There's stuff on the counter. Uh, so really paying attention to those details and doing things that are, that a professional photographer learns about, you know, taking those tips as an amateur, that's all stuff that's really important to do well on the platform. So we learn about that, but then we also learn like, here's all of the analytics, how to interpret your engagement, how to figure out like, here's what people like, and then the algorithms, how do these work, they work and put it all together. So uh, yeah, there's a real combination of things. And this is the second year that it's run. And so this must be a, essentially a subject matter that the, the students, it's going to be a growing subject matter, surely. There's going to be more kids wanting to learn how to do this and get it right, you know. I'm sure there's a bunch of old folks like me sitting there going, why can't I do that? <laughs> but um, <laughs> there's got to be, a, that, yeah, for me, there's got to be a, a growing audience. Today. You say you've got 40 now. How many did you have last year? Uh, about the same. Uh, and that was really surprising because we kind of launched it a week before the students had to register. Um, I think if we get this online into, I mean, it's online for our students now, but they pay regular tuition. If we get that material online for people outside the university, there's a huge interest in this. And look for the students, like on one hand, this is an amazing class to teach because I'm like, pick a thing that you think is interesting and then do that online for a semester. Like students love that. They're so into it. But also, even if they don't end up taking off with their account, they're going to learn how to be social media managers. That's really what this class is, is all the stuff you need to learn if you hire me to come in and do it for you. And that's a place where right now, as you mentioned, there's just a lot of charlatans out there who don't know what they're doing. And there's a huge demand for people who really know it. So I think the students who go through this, they're going to be very well prepared going forward. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. It's such an important subject to, for, for all businesses, whether you're Coca-Cola or Don the local plumber. It doesn't matter. It's, it's 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 important to business and it's important to people's lives. And if people are staring at their phones more and more and more, that's something that I find fascinating. How many hours have you used social media for today? It's like through COVID and through lockdown, the hours went off the charts for many people, didn't they? Oh, it sure did. I mean, it was, and I catch myself with this too. I don't restrict my screen time, but sometimes I'm like, I've just ended up in that loop where I've checked this site and this site and this site. And then I go back to the first one and I'm not even paying attention. I just need the stimulation that comes from it. So it, we yeah, have really optimized I'm, it. Yeah. 
I, I remember in, in lockdown last year, around March time, I, I don't know what the video was. It was something to do with airports and doing security at airports in, in Australia and the UK and stuff. I don't know how many videos came my way one day, but I'm pretty sure I went through 10 or 15 videos <laughs> watching incessantly over and over again, more people having drugs trapped in their shoes or in their belts or in their hair or in their suitcases and crimes being committed by people, you know, breaking the law in different ways. But again, social media takes you to that place. Jen, just before we go, okay, you obviously are an expert at what you do. Please can you tell me, other people out there that are in your space that you look to and inspire you or books that you've read on the subject that you think are really valuable for people to consume apart from your great stuff? Yeah. So in terms of books, um, I think Dragnet Nation is a really great book to check out. That came out a couple years ago. Uh, it's by a journalist who basically was like, I'm going to go off the grid and I, I don't want to get tracked by anything digitally including like when I go to my local Pilates class, I'm going to have a fake name just in case and uh, different passwords for everything. So it was really a year long experiment that she did that goes really deep into a lot of this data collection, but also how hard it is to really be thoroughly untracked and how inconvenient it is. So I think that's a, a great example from the privacy side. Um, I wish I had great resources for you in terms of like things to look at for how to do social media well, because I'm looking for that kind of reading to give to my students and there's nothing super awesome out there <laughs> at this point. Uh, I know it should be like the next book that I write, but I think so much of it changes, you know, from week to week uh, in terms of how the algorithms work, that it's, it's really hard to have a stable resource out there. Um, that said, for people who are on TikTok, start poking around and looking for social media managers on TikTok. Um, there are some really good ones out there, even the ones that are kind of hit or miss. Uh, you know, some people have mixed advice. Their good videos are going to be helpful to you. And look, they should have a lot of followers too, right? If their advice works, they should have a big following. Um, so dig around on there and you'll find plenty of tips that are applicable to get you going on the platforms. It's not going to be deep course, but it, but it'll be useful. Um, and then, you know, in terms of like looking at other websites and, and other social media accounts. Like my main advice really is if you want to take your business or your personal account, whatever it is, and really build a following is to find other people who are doing the thing like you're doing that are doing it well, and then really like make a study of what they're doing, because that's going to be better than anyone coming along and telling you, Oh, you need to post three times a week on Instagram and make sure you do reels and this thing. Like that's all good advice, but, it really varies so much depending on the topic area that you're working in. So find those people who are doing well, look how often they post, look at the time of day that they post, look at how they interact with people in the comments and how they cross promote things. That's going to be the best advice you can give if you can distill some lessons out of that. So make your own study of it that way. One of my students is a guy called Arash Zad and Arash over in Dubai is a lawyer. And I said to Arash about a year ago, Get your ass on TikTok. And he's like, I'm not going on TikTok. I'm a lawyer. I charge for my advice. I charge for my time. I'm like, Arash, do me a favor. Please just trust me. Get on TikTok. Make videos and teach people stuff about what you know. Do it for free. They're one minute videos. You don't have to sing. You don't have to dance. I promise you. Okay, yes, you can wear your suit. Just all you've got to do is put the video in. I know you haven't got a tripod. Just lean it against the window so there's some light on your face and just teach people a few things. Anyway, he's now known in Dubai as the TikTok lawyer, and now he gets over 60% of his business from TikTok. And he's sitting there, with, I don't know, 160,000 followers or whatever. And it's like, man, I can't believe that you made me do that. It works. So there's obviously some, some great wins and some great good you know, benefits that people get when, like he did. What did he do? One video every single day, teaching a topic, okay, and asking people if they needed help. He then led them um, comments like crazy questions like crazy, sent them off to a website, 
X amount for 15 minutes, X amount for 30 minutes, X amount for an hour, click on the 30 minutes, that's all you'll need. And then he's like, Spencer, you've got no idea how many big fish were coming my way through TikTok. It wasn't just, you know, the guy that had the corner store, the mum and pop store that was asking for a bit of advice. He said, conglomerates have come to me. And so there's there's so much benefit that can be, can be delivered and, and gotten if you are consistent and you are committed to doing it. And I suppose it's that commitment really at the end of the day that really makes the difference, is it? Whether it's a, a student in one of your classes, whether it's you delivering what you do or I do what I do, it's that that that, that persistence and that commitment. It, it really is. And uh, TikTok works in a way exactly like we always envisioned social media should work. Like if you are putting that in, you're telling people surprising things that they want to know, but they may not even know to look for it. TikTok's going to put you in front of them because it knows how to show engaging content. And I have absolutely seen this with lawyers. Um, I've, I could certainly start a whole other career as a social media manager with the number of people who have reached out to me for advice. Um, every single field where you've just got professionals saying, here's a surprising thing from my field that I bet you didn't know. People love it. But you're right. You know, when you start, I tell people on TikTok three videos a day, which feels like a ton of work but it'll catch you in that algorithm in the first couple of weeks. And then if you're doing one a day, which is a lot of work, uh, but if you can get yourself in a pattern where it's like, okay, I'm gonna sit down for 30 minutes, say this thing, edit it down, you're gonna do great. And you're absolutely gonna reach people who are interested in your field. So it is work. It's not something that a 13 year old just does in their parents' basement and becomes famous on. But if you put that work in, it's, it's gonna pay off, absolutely. Jen, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today and giving me your time and sharing with our audience some really, really valuable information. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. To be honest with you, the power of the social media companies, I always, I kind of always thought they had great powers, but the fact that they can record everything on my phone, the fact that they can listen to everything I say through my microphone, the fact that they can follow my movements, and there aren't so many things you can do about that, really does make me uneasy. Should I be concerned and use my device less, or should I just accept it as progress? Well, great talking to Jen today, We're teaching us what we should do, what we shouldn't do, and learning about really some of those areas that some of us don't really think about as much as we could. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi events and Najahi tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoyed these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please, if you're listening on iTunes, then leave us a five-star rating. If you're listening on any other podcast app, then guess what? I need your love. I need your help. I need your support. I need you to help me get this podcast out to a bigger audience. So please leave us some love, give us a follow, and that will help this podcast reach more people so that they can enjoy this experience just as much as you have. Thank you so much.